And we pray for Mark as he comes to preach in a moment. We do pray for uh, his uh, physical strength. We do pray that he would preach uh, by the power of your spirit, that he would preach clearly and that he would challenge and uh, encourage each one of us this evening as we hear you speak to us. A blessing we pray and bless each one of us in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, the passage uh, Mark's focusing on this evening is from James, uh, chapter 3. I'm going to read that now together, starting at uh, verse 13 and continuing through to chapter 5, verse 6. Who is wise and understanding among you? Let them show it by their good life, by deeds done in the humility that comes from wisdom. But if you harbour bitter envy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast about it or deny the truth. Such wisdom does not come down from heaven, but is earthly, unspiritual, demonic. For where you have envy and selfish ambition, there you find disorder and every evil practice. But the wisdom that comes from heaven is first of all pure, then peace-loving, considerate, submissive, full of mercy and good fruit, impartial and sincere. Peacemakers who sow in peace reap a harvest of righteousness. What causes fights and quarrels among you? Don't they come from your desires that battle within you? You desire but do not have, so you kill. You covet, but you cannot get what you want, so you quarrel and fight. You do not have because you do not ask God. When you ask, you do not receive because you ask with wrong motives that you may spend what you get on your pleasures. You adulterous people, don't you know that friendship with the world means enmity against God? Therefore, anyone who chooses to be a friend of the world becomes an enemy of God. Or do you think scripture says without reason that he jealously longs for the spirit he's caused to dwell in us? But he gives us more grace. That is why scripture says God opposes the proud but shows favor to the humble. Submit yourselves then to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Come near to God and he will come near to you. Wash your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Grieve, mourn, and wail. Change your laughter to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will lift you up. Brothers and sisters, do not slander one another. Anyone who speaks against a brother or sister or judges them speaks against the law and judges it. When you judge the law, you are not keeping it, but sitting in judgment on it. There is only one lawgiver and judge, the one who is able to save and destroy. But you, who are you to judge your neighbor? Now listen, you who say, today or tomorrow we will go to this or that city, spend a year there, carry on business and make money. Why, you don't even know what will happen tomorrow. What is your life? You are a mist that appears for a little while and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if it is the Lord's will... We will live and do this or that. As it is, you boast in your arrogant schemes. All such boasting is evil. If anyone there knows the good they ought to do and doesn't do it, it is sin for them. 
Now listen, you rich people. Weep and wail because of the misery that is coming on you. Your wealth has rotted and moths have eaten your clothes. Your gold and silver are corroded. Their corrosion will testify against you and eat your flesh like fire. You have hoarded wealth in the last days. Look, the wages you failed to pay the workers who mowed your fields are crying out against you. The cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord Almighty. You have lived on earth in luxury and self-indulgence. You fattened yourselves in the day of slaughter. You have condemned and murdered the innocent one who is not opposing you. Well, good evening, everyone. Great to see you all here this evening. Um, I send greetings from Cornerstone. I was down the road at Cornerstone preaching this morning on a wonderful passage in Revelation 21. And uh, Paddy and the team down there send you their greetings. Um, If you're newer to the church, uh, Cornerstone is a church uh, that started from a group of people, predominantly from this church, uh, who wanted to support the gospel witness in Tame. They've been going a few years now. Um, But Cornerstone is going great. Uh, Do pay for Paddy. He's not been particularly well recently and uh, with Christmas coming and uh, not such a big team. It's a big challenge for him and his family. Um, But they're doing really well and really value our prayers. It was lovely to be with them. Uh, I survived the interview with Paddy, so that's all right. And uh, it was really nice to be able to pray for them as a church as well. Good. Well, um, working back for Christmas, we haven't got an evening service on Christmas Day. Um, the 18th, the Sunday before, is um, candlelit carols in here. Uh, the 11th, the one before that, uh, Wellesley's going to do a little one-off sermon, um, helping us to think about how we can engage our friends and community with the gospel over Christmas. Uh, and next Sunday evening uh, is the last one in James. So tonight we're in the kind of penultimate one in this little series we've been doing in James. Um, The subject we've been trying to track through the letter of James is the idea of faithfulness. How can we be faithful? And today um, we're thinking about this subject. How can we be faithful as we relate to each other? Um, Which I hope we'll agree is a pretty important subject in the life of a church. Um, Just before I pray, for my money, James sort of chapter 4 and 5 are two of the hardest chapters in the Bible. Um, I think there are some more technically difficult bits of the Bible, some of the apocalyptic literature, some narrative, a few bits of the law. But the problem with James, particularly chapters 4 and 5, is there's all these really good things, but kind of how do you fit it all together? Uh, I've been really wrestling with this chapter. Next week gets even harder. Um, So a wordle, uh, if you type in James into wordle, you get sort of lots of themes that jump out, and that can be really helpful in understanding the big picture of James. But how does it help us with this particular passage? Um, I think when it comes to difficult passages in the Bible, the the single biggest tool for understanding what a passage means is context. I often said that. The second is probably structure. And chapters 4 and 5 don't appear to have much logical structure. And it's not really helped by the subheadings you have in your Bible that weren't there originally. Um, They help a little bit, but individual phrases in chapters 4 and 5 make a lot of sense. But how they fit together, I think, is really tricky. Um, So let's pray for God's help that we would see clearly something that will help us tonight as we think about this subject, faithfully relating to others. Should we pray together? Father, we prayed earlier, uh, sung earlier, open the eyes of my heart, Lord. I want to see you. And I pray for each of us that you would open the eyes of our hearts tonight, that we would indeed see you in this passage. We would see truths in this passage that will help us to relate well to each other in the week ahead. Uh, Please, would you help us to understand the difficult things in it, and please encourage us from them, I pray, in the name of Jesus. Amen. Uh, Context is really helpful when it comes to understanding... Oh, I forgot to show you a picture. 
that I think is a good example of, uh, of, of structure in James. Uh, some people have argued that's the best picture of structure. So we'll see if we can make some sense of that kind of mess. Um, I said context is a really key tool for understanding a difficult passage. Structure is also a really important tool. And the third one is always worth interpreting difficult bits of the Bible in light of easier bits or bits that are clearer. So we're not sure some of the stuff that's going on in chapters 4 and into 5, but here's some things we do know in James. Just flip back in your Bible to James chapter 1, verse 1. Just remember who James is writing to. He's writing to Jewish Christians. So they are Jewish by culture, but they've become Christians. They've put their faith in Christ. And chapter 1, verse 1 says they're scattered all over the ancient world, and they're facing persecution. They're very isolated. They're struggling. We also know as you read through the book of James that one of the big issues in this church is kind of social conflict. Maybe you've got some wealthy Christians from some part of a culture and some less wealthy Christians and they come together in church but their kind of socioeconomic background causes a bit of friction. And the rich particularly, the wealthy, aren't relating so well to those who are less wealthy. And you see in chapter 4 verse 11, one of the verses we had read tonight, um, that people within the church were slandering each other. And James is going to address that. But really this passage focuses on wisdom. Think about what wisdom is. Very different to knowledge. I could spend hours and hours in my study reading books and filling my mind with knowledge. Uh, It's a really important thing to do. But wisdom comes when I take the knowledge that I gain from other people or from books. And wisdom then comes when we put into practice the knowledge that we have. So wisdom is, knowledge is about what I know. Wisdom is about the way I live skillfully with the knowledge that I have. And that's true for you as well. Um, And the thing that you see in the Bible, all about wisdom, is wisdom is not a sort of cerebral thing. It's very, very practical. It's applied. We see in this passage that wisdom is deeply relational. The wise person relates well to other people. So we're going to look at just three things in this passage. Uh, They're all on the screen there, and we're just going to follow them through quite simply. But the first one I'd love us to think about is, James wants us to see really clearly that wisdom fosters humility. Do you see there, chapter 3, verse 13? Uh, James kind of asked his hearers this question, uh, who is wise and understanding among you? I think that'd be a good question for you to rhetorically ask yourself now, in this room tonight. Who of you is wise and understanding? I've had to ask myself that question a lot of times this week. And then he goes on and says, Let them then show it by their good life, by deeds done in the humility that comes from wisdom. So we see there, wisdom fosters humility. But what James is going to go on to say is, he's not sure he's really seeing wisdom in these Christians. Notice how he goes on in verse 14. If you harbor bitter envy and selfish ambition in your hearts don't boast about it or deny the truth such wisdom doesn't come from heaven but he describes it here do you see as earthly unspiritual spiritual even demonic of the devil verse 16 for where you have envy and selfish ambition there you find disorder and every evil practice And presumably James is seeing some disorder in the way these Christians are relating. So what he's saying here is he's challenging them. Are you really wise? Let me unpick it a bit by looking at the way you relate together. And then it gets even stronger into chapter 4. Do you see in verse 1? He asked the Christians very clearly, what is it that causes fights and quarrels among you? So presumably there are some fights and quarrels going on. Don't they come from your desires that battle within you? 
You desire, but you do not have, so you kill. You covet, but you cannot get what you want. So you quarrel and fight. The point James is saying is, you Christians that I'm writing to, I love you, but I don't think you're relating very well together. I don't think you're being very wise. And every time you come to a passage like this in the Bible where you see um, one of the writers rebuking a church or an individual or an example of kind of where Christians are not living as they should, there's only one of two ways that you and I can respond. The first way is like this. We kind of wag our finger and go, tut, 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 look at that bad example. I'm just glad that's not me. The other way we can respond is kind of hold a mirror up and go, I thank God that that example's there in the scriptures because actually that's probably often a picture of me. So are you a finger wagger or will you look in the mirror? I think a while ago I, I mentioned this little book. I read it years ago. Uh, this bloke here um, wrote a PhD, um, but he popularized it in this little book. And it's a book where he asked the question, I think I've mentioned this before. He said, why is it that there are so many examples of the Pharisees all over the Gospels? Why does the writers always write about the Pharisees? He was puzzled by it, and he wrote this great PhD. He put it into a nice little book that you and I could read. But the conclusion he came to was the reason there are loads of examples of the Pharisees in the Gospels is the Gospel writers want to say to you and to me, be really careful, because you can so easily be a Pharisee. You can so easily wag your finger when you see something that's not right rather than hold the mirror up and go that's me and I need forgiveness for it so James is I guess challenging the lack of humility and therefore the lack of wisdom in many of the Christians he writes to but look at the contrast to this kind of earthly wisdom Uh, back in chapter 3 verse 17 in in contrast to the ungodly ungod glorifying wisdom he says in verse 17 but the wisdom that comes from heaven is pure kind of the idea it's not tainted it's not stained it's peace loving it's considerate it's submissive it's full of mercy and good fruit it's impartial and sincere so the implication in what james is saying is that wisdom is a great thing but you won't find wisdom inside you Because like we saw last week, it's out of a person's heart that their mouth speaks. We saw last week that so much that's unhelpful comes from our mouth. Why? Because of the state of our hearts. And exactly the same here. So often we fail to be wise because of the states of our hearts. If there's ungodly desire deep within me, it's not going to come out in in the way that we relate well to each other. So just on this little... Uh, point here i hope we all see that we would desire to be wise people we want to be wise we want to be humble but i hope inside you're feeling a bit of attention because you're feeling i'm not as humble as i want to be i'm not as wise as i want to be i've seen the mirrors held up to me and i struggle in this area i'm going to come back to this but just see first of all that wisdom does indeed grow humility have a look at the second thing that you'll see on the screen. Wisdom is rooted in a submission to God. Uh, I'm going to tell you a little story. Timo, you're going to like this story, okay? When I was your age and I was living in Bath, I remember I was, um, my partner in crime was a, a little guy called Christopher Bradby. Um, we were quite naughty and we used to just go off on our bikes and build dens and um, do naughty things like boys did. I'm not implying that you ever do anything naughty, Timo. But I was your age when I did this. I remember going to a place called Brown's Folly. I've no idea where it is. It's somewhere outside Bath. And I remember being exactly your age and there was an electric fence separating where we were from where we wanted to go. Well, if you're a young boy, Timo's kind of age, and if you weren't well-behaved like Timo, what would you do when there's an electric fence? 
you try and cross it. Because whatever they're trying to keep you out from is obviously exciting. So we tried to cross it. But of course, I wasn't tall enough. It was about this high. So I remember balancing in a, in a trickly stream, quite a narrow, narrow stream, a rock. And on the other side, there was a log. You see where this is going, can't you? And I tried to stand on it. It was just enough height to be able to lift my leg over this electric fence. And you know what happened. The rock slipped, the log slipped, I slipped, and it was rather painful. Timo, if you ever find an electric fence, don't try and cross it, particularly using the method I did. When you've got a, a leg on the other side of an electric fence, it can be very, very painful. <laughs> it's not really where you're meant to be, okay? What James is actually saying in this passage is there's a sort of problem when you have a foot in two camps. Look at chapter 4, verse 1. He says, what causes fights and quarrels among you? Don't they come from your desires that battle within you? Let's just step back for a minute. Um, Maybe at Sunday school, maybe uh, you were learning something when you grew up. Uh, The tenses of salvation, I don't know if you've ever heard this. If you haven't, it's a a great thing to remember. Um, You and I, if we put our trust in Jesus, have been saved, past... We have been saved from the penalty of sin. Because I've trusted in Jesus who's paid for my sin, he's forgiven me. So the penalty is paid for in the past. I have been saved from the penalty of sin. You go into the future, I will be saved from the presence of sin. It was the passage I was speaking on at Cornerstone this morning. Uh, One day in heaven, the place will be perfect and there'll be no more sin. So in the past, I have been saved from the penalty of sin in the future i will be saved from the presence of sin but we live as christians in the present where i am being saved from the power of sin even when i put my trust in jesus there's still a battle going on in my heart god has my heart but there's a battle there's a tension because the world wants my heart jesus wants my heart and there's a wrestling match always going on and god by his spirit is helping us to give us that power to wrestle with the battle that's going on in our heart. Well, James is writing to these Christians for whom there's a battle going on in their heart. And do you know how he describes them? Have a look at chapter 4, verse 4. He describes them as adulterous people. Don't you know that friendship with the world means enmity? That means sort of conflict against God. And then in verse 8, he describes them as being double-minded It's very like me having one foot on the side of an electric fence on the rocky stone and one foot on the other side of the fence on the slippery stick. It wasn't going to support me for long and it became very painful. James is saying don't have a foot either side. Don't have a foot in God's camp wanting to put him first and a a foot in the world. And how is this played out? When we have this battle going on in our hearts and metaphorically we have a foot either side of the electric fence, it plays out often in a kind of arrogant self-reliance have a look at verse 13 he says now listen and he said that james said that in chapter three it's kind of a way of arresting his hearers and saying listen you who say today or tomorrow we will go to this city we'll spend a year there we'll carry on business we'll make money why you don't even know what will happen tomorrow what is your life you are a mist that appears for a little while and then vanishes. That amazing message that our culture needs to hear. A culture that is so controlling. A culture that says, I'm in control of my future, particularly living in a place like this. And as long as I've got a lot of money in my bank account and I'm successful in my job, I'll be secure. It's a full security. And he goes on, verse 15, instead you ought to say, if it's the Lord's will, we will live and do this or that. You might have seen in some letters or expressions when people write, they write sort of, I'll see you tomorrow, DV. 
It's Latin for Deo Volentes, means God willing. Some people put that in letters and in expressions to people. It's just, a, I guess, a cultural expression of sort of saying, God willing, I hope that that's what will happen, but I trust that God's in control. And it's a nice little phrase. Verse 16, as it is, instead you boast in your arrogant schemes. All boasting is evil. If anyone then knows the good they ought to do but doesn't do it, it is sin for them. Right? I'd like you just to notice the two mistakes in that little passage that the people are making. The first mistake is the kind of false control. And you get it in verse 13. We will. It's very foolish if we live our lives saying we will do this, we will do that, we will do this, we will do that. It's a false control because I'm not actually in control of my life. But so often we want to kid ourselves that we are. Notice the second mistake, verse 13. It's the kind of false security. We will make money. Money being a great gift from God, but often being the thing that gives us a full sense of security. As long as I've got a lot of money in my bank, I'm secure. It's just not true, is it? Two mistakes that they make. But in contrast to that kind of foolishness, true wisdom would say, I'm not in control of my life. True wisdom would say, I'm utterly dependent on God for everything that I have. And I think we've all got a lot to learn in that area. But James is urging the people who are listening to him, don't have a foot in either camp. Don't have your legs either side of an electric fence. And then he get this puzzling verse in verse 5. Do you notice he says, Or do you think scripture says without reason that he jealously longs for the spirit he has caused to dwell in us? But he gives us more grace. That is why scripture says, God opposes the proud but shows favor to the humble. That's a difficult verse, isn't it? But I think what it's saying, Christians, if you put your trust in Jesus, God's spirit lives in you. But James is saying God longs not just for his spirit to live in you, but to be alive in you. Uh, There are other places in the New Testament that talk about grieving the Spirit of God or quenching the Spirit, suppressing the work of the Spirit in our life. God's Spirit is in you. If you're a Christian, you have God's Spirit, all of his Spirit in you. You can't have a bit of God's Spirit. The Spirit is person. But God's Spirit can be in you, but not alive in you, because we suppress truth, because we grieve him. I think here what he's saying is, God longs for the Spirit that is in you to be alive in you, to grow this humility. God opposes the proud, but he shows favor to the humble. And this, you see, would replace the false control and the false security that you and I would naturally grab hold of, perhaps from things in this world. Instead, don't you see in this passage, chapter 4, verse 7, submit yourselves then to God. Come near to God, verse 8. And then verse 10, humble yourselves before the Lord. If we're to be faithful as a church in relating well to each other, first of all, we need to grow in humility, which comes uh, through wisdom. And secondly, we need to grow in a willing submission before God, which again comes from wisdom. I'd just like to pause before we come to our last thing and just give us a moment of quiet, because I, I think that this is an issue that many of us will battle with. I'd like you just to think, what area of your life are you clinging for control in? Just take a couple of minutes of quiet to bring that before the Lord and ask that God by his spirit would release that control so that we would be truly wise and submit all of our lives to God. Just take a moment. What area of your life 
are you trying to cling on to for control? Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, we long to be wise, but so often we are very proud and we lack the humility that leads to wisdom. We long to be wise, but so often we lack a right submission before you and we cling to things in our life that give us a full sense of security and a full sense of control. Father, I pray for each of us and for myself in this moment of quiet that you would be laying on our heart that area of our life that we don't yet give over to you. And I pray that your spirit would help release that control, that we can grow in submission to you and therefore grow in the wisdom that we almost desperately need. Father, however you've been ministering to each of us in our hearts in that moment of quiet, please continue that work in the days ahead and Please help us to grow in wisdom for your name's sake. Amen. Just the last thing I'd like to look at. Uh, wisdom teaches us to love one another. I said at the beginning that wisdom is deeply relational. It's kind of applied knowledge. And we all need in a very relational setting like a church to be growing in wisdom. Have a look at a lovely picture of relational wisdom in chapter 3 verse 13. Wisdom that comes from heaven. That's wisdom from God is first of all pure, peace-loving, considerate, submissive, full of mercy and good fruit, impartial and sincere. If you look at the two things we've already thought about tonight, why is humility so important? Because it helps me have a right view of myself. Why is submission so important? Because it helps me have a right view of God. There's only one other group of people in the world. There's me or you, there's God, and there's other people. And if we grow in humility, if we grow in submission, it will help us to relate well to each other. But notice how the people who James is writing to often forgot this. In, in chapter 3, verse 16, there was envy and selfish ambition in the church. That's deeply relational, isn't it? And in chapter 4, verse 11, there were slandering one another. And James wants to challenge it because it's not helpful it's not helping the church to grow in wisdom and so he lays it on even thicker particularly targeting a particular group of people as we move into chapter five so let's just work through these verses together now listen chapter five verses one 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 now listen you rich people now he's not he's not condoning all rich people here he's just saying in this church there were people who happened to be rich and that wealth was creating in them a particular attitude okay Listen, you rich people, weep and wail because of the misery that's coming on you. Your wealth has rotted and moths have eaten your clothes. See, our material comfort and wealth isn't as secure as we perhaps might like to think. He goes on, verse 3, your gold and silver are corroded. Their corrosion will testify against you and eat your flesh like fire. It's very strong language, isn't it? Very like the words that we heard last week in chapter 3 on the power of the tongue. And then he gets quite strong. He says, listen, you have hoarded wealth in the last days. Look, the wages you failed to pay the workers who mowed your fields are crying out against you. So probably in the context, there were some kind of wealthy landowners in the church. And they were kind of abusing those who'd had very little, making them work too hard and they're not paying them. And yet they were Christian brothers and sisters in Christ. And those who had money had power and they were using that power in an ungodly way that wasn't wise and wasn't serving those around them. 
And he goes on, end of four, the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the almighty God. In other words, God sees everything. He sees every moment when we don't relate well. And by contrast, of course, he sees every moment when we do relate well. And it gives him great joy. He says, verse five, you've lived on earth in luxury and self-indulgence. You've fattened yourselves in the day of slaughter. You've condemned and murdered the innocent one who was not opposing you. It's really a picture of people with means who are withholding their means and by implication then living selfishly and not loving their neighbor. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul and strength. Love your neighbor as yourself. And James is simply saying, if you want to be a wise person, think very carefully about the way that you relate to others. We're going to come to a close now, but... I hope as we've seen in these three things are on the screen that we long to be humble. I hope so. I hope we long to be a church that's submissive, first of all, to God. I hope we long to be a church that grows in wisdom, that we can love each other. And we see these these things in action all the time in this church. It's a wonderful thing when we do see them. And I thank God for you and I thank God for these examples. But I know we can all say, but so often I fail to be humble. I fail to submit. I fail to truly love. But rather like last week then, when we hear all about the power of the tongue, you go, yeah, well, that's what I want to do, but I fail to do it. What do we do? We're going to see this week exactly the same solution. Just jump back for the last thing we'll look at to chapter 1 in James. It's a verse I'm sure you'll know, chapter 1 and verse 5. Because right at the beginning of this letter, James had spoken to the people and he had said this. James 1 verse 5. If any of you lacks wisdom... He should ask God who gives generously without finding fault. First of all, know that wisdom is found in God. If you lack wisdom, ask God. Because God is the one who gives wisdom. And notice how he gives wisdom. He gives wisdom generously. God's not a God who is wise and grudgingly gives us little bits of wisdom. He wants to lavish wisdom on us because he knows it's so important for the way we relate. And if we ask God in humility... He gives generously. And then I love the last little phrase. Do you see it there? Without finding fault. If you come to God and ask for wisdom when you know that you're foolish, he's not going to say, you don't deserve wisdom, so I'm not going to give it to you. He's a God who generously gives. He overlooks the faults and the times we fail to be wise and says, yes, I'll give you my wisdom. So I want to go from this passage into communion because as we come to this table and as we reflect on all that christ has done for us his body that was broken for us his blood that was poured out for us we thank god ultimately don't we for jesus christ who the new testament describes as wisdom from god christ has become wisdom for us i want you to think as we come to the lord's table have a think about the person of jesus christ You and I want to be humble, but we fail all the time to be humble. But think of Jesus as you look at the bread and the wine now. Wasn't he the perfect example of humility? In Philippians, that great passage, he, Jesus, didn't consider equality with God something to be grasped, something to be used to his own advantage, but he considered himself nothing. Jesus is the perfect example of humility. But he's far more than just an example. It's his humility that took him to the cross, giving up all that he had by right that you and I can know God Uh, we long to submit our lives to God don't we and you listen to the words of Jesus in John chapter 6 verse 38 where he says I've come down from heaven not to do my will but the will of him who sent me 
Again, not just a great example of submission, though it is that. But you think of Jesus in Gethsemane when he was sweating drops of blood, longing for the suffering to be taken from him. But what did he cry? Not my will, but yours be done. The perfect example of submission. And again, not just an example, but it was through that submission that Christ went to the cross. For you and for me that we can be forgiven and have new life. And we all long to have wisdom that we would love one another. And we read in John chapter 1, one of John's letters, chapter 3, 1 John chapter 3 verse 16. This is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us. Yes, an amazing example of self-sacrifice, but far more than just an example. By laying down his life for us as we celebrate in the Lord's Supper, he was helping us to know God again that God's spirit can come and live within us to forgive us for all the times we fail to be wise and bit by bit to grow that godly Christ-like wisdom within us that we would be a church that grows in humility in submission before God and in a deep, deep love and concern for each other.